to Blacklight Mass Incarceration Show. I am your host, Sierra Cobb. Blacklight Mass Incarceration Show is a space that is used to uplift the unheard voices of the criminal and social justice issues that many face today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Hey, everybody. I have a special guest with me today. I have attorney Elizabeth Best. Um, she's an attorney out of South Carolina. And without further ado, I will let you continue to introduce yourself. Thanks, Sierra. Yeah, um, I, my name is Elizabeth Franklin Best. I'm a lawyer in Columbia, South Carolina. I have my own law firm, and we focus on really sort of appellate work. Um, we handle criminal appeals. Uh, we do it for state inmates in South Carolina, but then we also handle a lot of federal appeals for South Carolina inmates, North Carolina actually sort of throughout the United States. We do direct appeals. We do federal post-conviction. We do compassionate release petitions. And, you know, anything else that we can to try to get sentencing relief primarily. As you know, in the federal system, there are just sort of more creative ways to actually get sentencing relief, even if you can't get conviction relief. And so that's just kind of what we focus on. That's amazing. There needs to be a lot more of that in and just around the United States to help a lot of people kind of get relief because we know so many people, as we're starting to see now, have been wrongfully convicted or over overly sentenced so for minor, minor crimes and drug charges and things of that nature. So it's really important that we have more law firms that do that because, I mean, honestly, that's the only way we're going to be able to tackle mass incarceration is to have post-conviction and then set forth of making a system that is going to be just and equal for all and not just for certain people and certain salary caps and things of that nature. Yeah, and I mean, you know, so, and I think about this because I mean, I've done plenty of work in the state system just as as you have. And it's nothing to see like a 22-year-old person get like, you know, a 15-year sentence for drugs. And then they go into the Department of Corrections and, you know, they never get in trouble because they're not criminals. You know, they just they end up in there and because of really kind of what are maybe drug addiction issues or maybe poverty issues or something like that. And there's really just no reason why, you know, when somebody gets a sentence like that, that there's just no review of it. You know, I mean, somebody after five years, after six years, after 10 years, you know, it's fundamentally a different person than the person who's kind of initially sent away to prison. And if somebody, you know, takes advantage of their time there and educates themselves and takes advantage of any kind of programming and things like that, I mean, these are people who could come back out into the communities, you know, and maybe under some supervision or something like that. But these are fundamentally like not dangerous people. And I feel like this is just sort of something that most people aren't aware of. You know, when you turn on the news, you see a lot about this incredibly violent crime. You know, you would kind of be scared that the world is sort of a hellscape, right? Or, or something like that when you when you turn on the news. But that's not really what incarceration in America looks like. I mean, a lot of people who are in there are in there for pretty low-level offenses, non-violent, non-dangerous offenses. And we're just spending so much money warehousing these people. And, you know, there's some 
jurisdictions that have like motions for sentence reduction, you know, where you kind of say to the court, hey, look, I've been, you know, I've got this 10 year sentence. Since I've been in there, I've done this, I've done that. I haven't had any disciplinaries. You know, I've been helping other inmates learn how to read. I've kept in touch with my family. I've got this place to go home to. And, you know, in those jurisdictions, a court can look at that and say, you know what, we're going to cut off a little bit of time for this guy. We're going to, you know, reduce the sentence by two or three years. And it incentivizes, you know, the inmates who are in there. It makes the institution itself safer. And it just recognizes, you know, that people are different, people change, people are not necessarily violent, and provides a way for them to get out of prison. But that's not what we have in most places. I mean, typically what happens is you got a young kid, gets lit up with just this incredible sentence, goes into prison, and that's it. And, you know, they get out when they get out, if they get out. And it just, you know, it it just doesn't recognize, you know, the humanity of the people who are in the system. It doesn't recognize the reality of who we're putting into the system. And it's just warehousing human lives. And, you know, it's not making our society any safer. It's inflicting harm on, you know, the offender's family and community. And I mean, for what? You know, I just get kind of get on my high horse sometimes about these things. But, you know, it's just a it's just a really awful, awful system, I think. It is. And it seems like the system is failing in in every step because you have it's failing in the schools because you have your school to prison pipeline. It's failing when it comes to child protective services services, because that is another pipeline. I don't don't think a lot of people realize that is another pipeline. And then you have your adult prisons and now you have your elderly prisons where you're warehousing elderly people that we know aren't going to commit a crime. Like these people are literally sick the amount of money that we are spending to house elderly people in a prison where we could just send them home, knowing they're not even in a position to do anything, blows my mind that now prisons have become hospitals. They become mental health centers. They become child daycare where they're raising children. Now they have palliative care, like a nursing home. So it's your prisons are becoming your communities. And I don't think people are really realizing that that is what's really happening and it's taking taxpayers' dollars to pay that. So that's why we don't have resources and that's why public education is horrible, especially in North Carolina. Um, And that's why you have the disparities that you have in each community in each state because we are warehousing human beings and we're taking taxpayers' dollars to, to warehouse them but still give them minimal rehabilitation. I mean, that's exactly right. Like, I know, I don't know what the numbers are in North Carolina, but the last time I looked, it's like the the average cost of housing a South Carolina inmate was around 30 something thousand dollars. Okay, so let's just talk about that now. You know, so let's just take somebody who's in there for like some kind of crack charge, you know, or some some kind of low level drug offense. You know, they get a three year sentence. They're spending almost $100,000 over the course of three years to kind of warehouse this person when, you know, you could be putting that money into, let's just say, like social workers or probation agents or, you know, something like that who can actually sort of supervise some of these people who are sort of on the edge. You know, some of these people who, you know, 
kind of the nuisance people, right? I mean, that's kind of how I think of them. The ones who sort of kind of cycle in and out through your detention centers because they've got addiction issues. You can get a lot of professional help for people in that situation. If you just took out some of these guys who are serving prison sentences for nonviolent conduct, I mean, prison just needs to be for the dangerous. You know, I mean, there's a reason to put people in prison, and it's because maybe they really need to be away from other human beings because they constitute a danger. That's not most people in departments of corrections. And I mean, I just think that that is something that a lot of people don't see. They don't recognize that. They don't. Of course, I'm I'm abolitionist, so I'm, I don't say we need prisons, but I think we need to change it to where it is where they're getting, always getting deep rehabilitation for the ones that can't live among society. I think that there should be not mental health hospital, prison hospitals that they have or prisons, but true, deep, holistic healing that they should always continuously get rehabilitation classes education and i think that that is a whole better way than just still warehousing people who have an issue because a lot of people some people are born with you know brain chemical imbalances so they commit certain crimes because you know their brain is not functioning so those are the ones and ones who have other serious illnesses need to be somewhere where they're getting healing and they're you know they're getting education and and just resources that they need, not just sitting, wasting away in a prison or a solitary confinement unit because some people spend decades in solitary confinement and yeah. that automatically erases a lot of your brain function. Like it technically stops your brain function. And so yeah. we still have to imagine other ways that are that is still that can still keep them safe, but they're still getting what they need, even though they can't live among society. And I just don't understand why why we aren't thinking about that. Like if you're going to take taxpayers dollars, I would rather for it to go in something like that, where it's not like a prison institution, but it's something that, you know, is safe. It's a safe environment for everybody. And people don't realize that, I mean, in in doing something like that, what you're doing is making your society safer. I mean, the, you know, the, the vast majority of people who are in departments of corrections are getting out. They're going home. They're returning to their communities. So they can either come back in one of two ways, prepared to reintegrate back into their community or not. <laughs> and so, you know, what we're doing by just kind of warehousing them for these you know, terms of years without providing any kind of instruction or any sort of guidance, any kind of education, is we're not preparing people for what's going to happen when they return back into the community. And what we need to be doing is, I mean, here's some, you know, business instruction. I mean, here are some, you know, labor, you know, here's some training for how you can, you know, take care of yourself upon your release and become a member, a contributing member to your community again. Instead, we just want to sort of pretend like, you know, it never happens. Like once they go away to prison, they never get out. And I mean, we just, there's this huge blind spot. You know, I think when people are released from prison, you know, people don't really know about it. Maybe they put them on a bus and send them into downtown Columbia. I mean, that's what they're doing here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's just no resources kind of like on that back end to make sure that when people are coming back into their communities, you know, they're doing so in such a way as to maximize their opportunity for successful integration. 
Right. And then we also have to change the thinking of the community because we have made this biased narrative that people that come home, you know, they're felons, so they can't get jobs. You know, they can't have really have careers. They can't really do anything in society because we have painted the picture that because you went to prison, you can't come back home and be a successful, productive citizen. And so making sure that they're able to get jobs, that they are able to get housing, because a lot of people can't get housing with a misdemeanor. So let alone have an you know what I mean? Sometimes it's hard to get bank accounts, your ID, like just simple things that they need, we shun them for going to prison and say, oh, well, you can't have rights to this and you can't have rights to that, you can't vote, you, things of that nature. So we are, we're still hurting them because when they come back in the community, they have no support at all because the community feels like, oh, well, you went to prison and you got this record and, you know, we're labeling them. And so they're yeah. walking around with a label and then they have to revert back to doing things that got them into prison. And then I hear so many people that have been there for so long and it's so institutionalized that they don't even want to come back to society. Right. We're right. having so long. They're like, oh, I don't, you know, I, I, I would, they don't even know how to handle the stress of decades of changing in a society. And you've been warehoused where everything's been the same for 20 or 30 years, besides maybe staff changing. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right, right. No, definitely. Definitely. You, you have to change everything. Like everything has, the whole scenario has to change and people's thinking has to change in order for it to be successful on both ends. And I think the difficulty with that, right, is that whenever you want to have kind of like the difficult conversations about this, you know, it's like the second you sort of suggest even some kind of compassion or some sort of understanding for kind of people in these situations, you're kind of immediately labeled as being soft on crime, you know, and that has been a very effective canard, you know, in our political history. I mean, whenever you can sort of label the other person as being soft on crime, you lose your next election. And so, you know, I don't know how you get somebody who's sort of brave enough who can kind of weather those sorts of attacks. Um, and that's why, you know, you know, I, t- I try to be optimistic about it, but I don't think it's, you know, it's almost like the politicians are just incapable of really addressing the issues. They just lack the political will to do what really needs to be done. I mean, you just can't even have the conversations. But then you wonder why is politics involved in people's lives? In that in that extent, to say, well, you're not gonna you're not gonna be reelected as DA because you're soft on crime, right? But your job is to protect everybody, not just the victims, but you also have a duty as a prosecutor to protect the rights of the person accused as well. So them automatically, most of them go. I don't. I'm not gonna say all of them. Most of them go in with the mind of this person is guilty. They don't try to see the other side of, well, maybe you know we just don't have enough evidence, or I just can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they committed this crime, or maybe they got caught up in something. They don't never think about the other possibilities. Just you know, they hone in on one person and that's it. So it's a lot of bias thinking on both ends, and even it could be on the end. Of your defense attorney sometimes they think that you're guilty they just you know go do a job so yeah that has to change too I don't think that politics somebody getting elected should be embedded for people's lives because this is literally 
people's lives that you are playing with. You're, you're giving people death sentences. You're giving people life without parole. You're now giving it to children. And so the thought that just throwing your human, your humanization away into a box for these many of years and just, I couldn't sleep at night. Like I, as a DA, I, I, I don't see how they sleep. I just, I don't, <laughs> I really don't. No, I mean, I, I'm kind of the same way. And I mean, I've thought this for the, throughout my career. It's like, you know, as a criminal defense attorney, like I never have to worry that I'm on the wrong side. Right. I mean, if the system works, then a person who's guilty is going to, you know, is going to kind of stay incarcerated or is going to sort of stay being punished. But, you know, if you're if you're the prosecutor. Right. I mean, you just have a different way of kind of going about it. Right. I mean, you actually have to sort of make a decision that you feel like you're comfortable with, you know, either somebody's guilty or not guilty. And I imagine at a certain point, I mean, you're a prosecutor, maybe you just sort of see everybody's being guilty. You got law enforcement coming to you who's convinced that this person's guilty. I mean, obviously prosecutors have the duty to kind of look beyond that and to, to really sort of exercise their judgment when deciding whether or not to go forward with charges against people but I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. I mean, I would be tortured wondering if I got it wrong, you know, <laughs> that's why, you know, in some sense, you know, I sleep better as a criminal defense attorney. Cause I just, I mean, I do my job and, you know, I don't get guilty people off on technicalities. Right. I mean, if I'm getting somebody out of prison, it's because the system screwed up, you know, <laughs> and I was lucky enough to fortunate enough to be able to help somebody you know, undo that wrong. Hi, this is Jay Cobb, your host on Black Light Massacre and Racing Show. Did you know every move is a combination of how much energy you have and how stressed you are? That is your body and that's really important and i know that one of your areas of practice is ineffective of counsel because not all the time that the state gets it wrong sometimes it's because your your attorney didn't do his job up to par or her so can you tell us how attorney can be ineffective at times yeah sure i mean you know there are tough so let's talk about ineffective assistance of counsel First of all, I think it's kind of important when you're talking about ineffective assistance of counsel that we're not necessarily talking about somebody who's like intentionally trying to sabotage their clients' cases. Right. You know, it's like when we call somebody ineffective, I mean, you know, I, there are a number of lawyers who kind of get, you know, their their back up against the wall and kind of take it personally when, I mean, you really kind of shouldn't because the truth of the matter is when you're dealing in the criminal justice system, especially state system, the, the system is kind of designed so that you can't be effective. <laughs> I mean, they're just, they're kind of like too many cases going through the system. Not I mean, money coming in, not enough money coming in. Like it is really hard to do the job effectively. And I wish people just sort of acknowledge that. And if they're found ineffective, just say, Hey, look, you know, I had 300 cases on my, my docket sheet. <laughs> I did We're the murder thing. cases. Like, we're not talking about small cases. We're talking about, they have like three, 
two to 300 murder cases. And we know those take two years, sometimes longer to even. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think I told you this, it was like my first day um, as a licensed attorney in the state of South Carolina. I'll never forget it. It was May 24th of 2004. And I mean, I was handed my 250 serious felony cases and was told, you know, have at it. And within six months, I was um, handling murder cases. So, you know, I was college educated. I had a lot of enthusiasm. I was pretty smart. You know, it's like, but I didn't know what I didn't know because I didn't have the experience. And so I'm sure I made mistakes. You know, I mean, I'm sure I did because how couldn't I have? You know, it's like, I mean, how could I not have dropped the ball on some of those cases just given the circumstances I was in? So, you know, so when we talk about ineffective assistance of counsel, I just want to kind of get that out there, because when we're saying that somebody's ineffective, we're not saying that they are morally a bad human being. We're not saying that they're stupid. We're not, you know, sort of saying that there's some, you know, mental deficiency. What we're saying is that sometimes people make mistakes. Good people make mistakes. And so that's kind of what what we focus on here. I mean, especially like when we're doing federal post-conviction work and obviously the state level post-conviction work is really where you have an opportunity to kind of talk about ineffectiveness. But one thing that a lot of people don't understand, and this is a conversation I have with my clients quite a bit, it's not enough just to say that your lawyer is ineffective. You have to show what the outcome would have been if you had had effective representation. So let's just say you've got a post-conviction hearing in North Carolina State Court. You can bring in the lawyer, the you know, the trial counsel and say, isn't it true that you didn't call this guy's alibi witness? And he'll say, you're right. I couldn't find the alibi witness. Well, then you better have that alibi witness present at that hearing to testify. Because under Strickland v. Washington, you've got to prove not only that your counsel was ineffective, but that it mattered. And the only way that you can show that it mattered is by putting up the evidence that trial counsel should have put up. Mm -hmm. And so there's this factual development piece of post-conviction relief that oftentimes, you know, kind of people that I'm talking to don't quite get. Like, they just want to say, you know, my lawyer screwed up because he should have gone and he should have found this stuff. Well, what was that stuff? You know, now we got to find it and we got to put that stuff up. Otherwise, the court, even if it were, even if it wanted to, would not be able to grant relief unless you've put that sort of information in the record. But so that's it. I mean, and, you know, the kinds of claims that we see most often in ineffective assistance of counsel cases are going to be failure to call an alibi witness. Like I see that all the time. And, you know, that is such a failure to investigate kind of claim, right? I mean, if you are an attorney representing a client who is faced with these serious charges, you have an independent duty to investigate that case. You cannot just take the state's case and try to sort of tear it apart. You have to go out and do stuff, that, and that would be yeah, you do. Discovery, right? <laughs> like if they actually went to go, so if they got the state's information and they saw the witness list and all the witnesses statements, so they're supposed to go reinvestigate, which would mean yeah. go. And so that information would be in the discovery, right? 
Yeah. I mean, so, you know, the way that it typically works, and I mean, I, I haven't practiced in North Carolina, but I've practiced elsewhere. And I mean, the way it typically works is that you file a motion and that compels the or the state to give you some discovery, right? I mean, so that's going to be kind of what their investigation is. They don't have to do it. There's no federal right, no constitutional right to discovery, but most states have sort of decided that, you know, it keeps people from complaining too much if we just hand over some of these reports. Right. Um, I mean, they have to comply with Brady. They have to turn over anything that's exculpatory, but they don't have to just turn over regular discovery. Well, I know we have an open file discovery. That's what we yeah, have. and that's that's good. I mean, that I like that. So, yeah, I mean, so you take a look at the file and you see what's in there. And, you know, you may have statements from like four or five different people who may have been witnesses. Well, what you want to do is you want to kind of go out and maybe talk to one or two of those people, see who else was there, right? See who didn't give a statement. That's when some of your independent investigation comes in. I mean, yeah, you get to, you know, talk to the people who have already talked to law enforcement. Law enforcement doesn't talk to everyone. And some of those people who were not spoken to or were spoken to but never gave statements, that's where you start finding like the information that's going to be helpful. All right. And that's what the independent investigations duty imposes on counsel. It's a lot. I mean, so this is why when we talk about, you know, public defenders having 250 cases, we're talking about a lot of work. I mean, if you are going to, you know, handle a serious case, it actually takes a lot of work. And it seems like our courts don't really recognize that. Our politicians don't recognize it. They just want us to kind of take the discovery from the state, look at it, walk into a courtroom, try to challenge it with some cross-examination, and call it a day. But at the end of the day, if you are relying on the state's case when you've got your own client, your client's going to be found guilty. There's a reason why your client was arrested. It's because that their information makes it look like your guy's guilty. So if you want something that's going to show that your guy isn't guilty, you got to go and get it yourself. You do. And that yeah. is just something I've come to learn <laughs> over the last 20 years. Yeah, you have to do your own investigation. I mean, you got to do your own investigation. Yeah. And so I was lucky that when I was working as a public defender, I worked at an office that really kind of understood that. and impress that upon us. And on Fridays, I mean, Friday afternoons, you know, we would all kind of go out on crime scene investigations. I mean, that was just sort of a thing. Everyone was sort of cool to, you know, once court was over, just sort of leave the office, go and do whatever investigation you needed to do. And you just learn a lot. Even if you just sort of drive through the area where an alleged crime is supposed to have happened, and you just kind of conceptualize it and you see it, it impacts the way that you handle that case. But I mean, being a really good criminal defense attorney means, you know, boots on the ground. You got to get out there. Yeah. You can't sit behind your desk. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I think a lot of them don't have that energy. I mean, you, you know, you have 200 cases and you have all this paperwork and different cases. Some of them have over thousands and thousands of pages of evidence that you have to go through one page at a time. And so it's just, it gets overwhelming. And so I think it's important that too, that they understand you got to self, you have to take care of yourself as well, especially oh, yeah. when you are defending somebody, because, you know, they call you for everything. When you're there, 
you know, sometimes they call just a vent. And so, you know, it, it takes a lot. Yeah. It takes a toll on you mentally just to be a defense attorney. In public that is true. I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, and you just cannot pour from an empty cup. You know, it's like you hear that a lot. And I mean, that's a, a huge, huge issue wellness and making yes. sure that and not and I mean not just you know the lawyers but I mean kind of everyone in the team mm. I mean there's you know just compassion fatigue and I mean it's just exhausting it can be exhausting when people or your clients are experiencing the very worst thing that has ever happened to them and mm. you are the person who is most proximate to that injury that trauma and so people will rely on you, you know, for, for comfort and, you know, as something against which they can express their anger. Um, and it can just, it can be a lot. <laughs> it can be taking on other, other people's trauma. I mean, you know, cause I mean, that's what attorneys are. They're advocates and I'm not an attorney. I'm a paralegal, but I am advocating. So taking on other people's trauma is a lot because you are stepping in that gap for them and filling that space. And so, you're absorbing everything that they're going through. You know what I mean? Just because that's what you do. I mean, that's what advocates do. They absorb and then they stand up and, you know, they fight. So it, it, it's a lot. You have to take care of yourself mentally, especially. Um, so what? how do you feel about a holistic public defenders? I'm, I'm starting to hear that a lot. I know New York has one, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the Promise Defenders and mm -hmm. Legal Aid Society. I mean, they do some really great work up in New York on all of this. They just have some really great people in this space. I mean, I think that's the way it has to be approached. When you've got a client, criminal defendant, I mean, yeah, they may have criminal charges, but oftentimes they've got issues because of poverty mm -hmm. or because of mental health. I mean, those are the people who get involved in the criminal justice system. It's not, you know, it, it, it's people from these marginalized communities with some of these, these issues that make them marginalized. So if you're going to really kind of help somebody, I mean, you've got to be prepared to kind of address those issues as well. I had a, a public defender who I worked with. He's subsequently gone down to Fulton County in Atlanta to um, to represent defendants. But he used to just kind of walk around. I mean, our office was on Main Street in Columbia. And he was just kind of like walk around to some of these restaurants and try to get our clients jobs. And he did. <laughs> There's like this place out there called like Drake's uh, Duck Inn, right? It was like this like chicken sort of restaurant. And he would just go in there and he had a relationship with the owner. And I mean, he would like get clients jobs there. And you know, but, and, but that's what they need. I mean, yes. people need housing security. They need food security. And, you know, they need to have their lights on. I mean, when people aren't making it to their probation departments because, you know, they don't have transportation. Asian, yes. That's a poverty issue. That's not a crime issue. But that and person, it can end up in prison, prison. again for missing those appointments. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can't, it's not even the bus line. Somebody can get on the bus. Well, there's some people who live in rural areas where you can't get to the bus or you have to get a ride just to get to the bus stop. And then the bus stops, I mean, they're not big. They're they're basically out in the open. So if it's raining, snowing, sleeting, hailing, whatever, you're going to get wet. And 
Right. So it's just a lot that goes into it that I don't think that they understand. And so I think it's important. I don't know if South Carolina, but I know some counties here have diversion courts, which is starting to kind of ease the burden of the community and not have them just sitting in jail because so many people lose their livelihood sitting in jail for a crime that they're being accused of, which in my opinion, America always says you're innocent until proven guilty, but if you're sitting in jail for months and months and sometimes years, years, how are you? Years. How are you innocent? Yes, there's one guy here. now in Atlanta that's been in jail for 10 years and still- All that. Yeah, there was an article on that just recently. I was like, what? Yes. What? Yes. I mean, I don't even yes. understand how that happens. I don't either. I, I, that, you see what I'm like? Stuff like that is just- there's people that sit in prison without an indictment. Like, well, in Mississippi, you're not even entitled to counsel until you've been indicted. So you've got people in Mississippi who are getting picked up on warrants, go into their detention centers, waiting and, to be indicted and, and disappearing. I mean, because nobody knows they're there. I mean, like nothing sort of triggers that right to counsel until the indictment. Nobody. I mean, I, I don't. I don't even understand how that's constitutional. I don't either. But it, I mean, that's another state that just has you know lack of resources, and I mean, it's largely rural. I mean, it's just these things are just happening here in America. And you know, if you if somebody told you this was happening in like China or Russia, you'd be like, well, that's what I expect to happen in China or Russia. You don't necessarily expect that here. So where, so where is the taxpayer's money going? That's why I, I always preach to always be involved in budget. Like I know North Carolina has a budget class where anybody can join and they teach you about your county's budget because that is so important <laughs> to understand and know where your money is going. Because yeah. that no state should have anything to where they don't have right to counsel. Like it should automatically be right to counsel this is why I say I feel like law should be taught in high school so you can start representing yourself so you don't have to depend on because that's that is insane. I thought right. the union law was that everybody has right to counsel. No, you do. I mean, you got the right to counsel, but I mean, when does it attach? You know, and there's a lot of variety throughout the country as to that particular issue. When does that right attach? Yeah. I know I've heard about New York's prosecutors wanting to change the exculpatory or the discovery law where they don't have to basically don't want to give over anything. And I'm just like, why not? Why? I mean, maybe like, why not? What are you scared of? I mean, I we like I just understand that. I mean, seriously, I mean, all evidence related to somebody's, you know, liberty being infringed on ought to be available to the lawyer representing that person. Look, if it implicates, you know, victims or, you know, witnesses and things like that, do it under court order. Doesn't matter. I mean, you can keep it out of the public, but a lawyer who is defending another human being on criminal charges needs to have access to every single piece of paper that has been generated in connection with that investigation. Full stop. I mean, I just don't even understand why everyone doesn't agree with that. If you don't agree with that, you're hiding stuff. I mean, it was just doesn't make sense. It doesn't. It's just, things seem like they're just going backwards. It's just I don't understand. Like a lot of things. I mean, this thing. is, we we are we are living, I think, in the mean times. 
And there was a time, and it wasn't too long ago, where a lot of us really sort of felt like things were about to change. Mm -hmm. And we're going to change in a very good and significant way. Like, I really thought, I mean, I believe this. I thought the death penalty was going to end in America. I thought that once Hillary Clinton won the election, things were going to be different. There were going to be new justices on the United States Supreme Court, and we were going in a different direction. But instead, we are where we are. And I think a lot of it is because of just what has happened over the last seven years. It's just been a lot of anger and Mm -hmm. hate and meanness that it's just hard to even imagine. And I mean, we just could have been in such a very different place than we are right now. Very, very different place. And now it's just time for those of us who are kind of in this space to, you know, rally our troops <laughs> and just kind of put our head down and kind of do the work we can and, you know, win our small victories, right? I mean, I feel like we could, I, I feel like we have greater chances of success winning in our, you know, first level courts and our trial court levels. I mean, let's like win where we can. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't think we're going to win in the United States Supreme Court for years. So it's just time to kind of win where you can. And that's kind of what, you know, it's kind of what my firm is sort of focused on. I mean, let's let's try to get these, let's try to eke out these wins in our district courts or in our circuit courts of appeal. I mean, let's just try to win where we can because there are still some pretty favorable forums for people who are kind of advancing, you know, the interest that we are, but it's, it's, it's going to be a while until things are going to be markedly better, I think. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And I always say it gets harder before it gets easier. So hopefully, (laughs) hopefully this is the hard part and eventually we can get back to where, you know, we can, create a better system that is fair and just for all because the system we have now seems like it don't care who you are (laughs) it's just gonna throw you right up under that bus and you're gonna be incarcerated and that is that and so well when you look at like what's happening out in Oklahoma with Richard Glossop's case right I mean Oklahoma this is where the attorney general of Oklahoma has confessed error in a death penalty case, says that this conviction is unreliable. Please don't execute this man. And the Board of Pardons and Parole, or whatever they're, whatever it's called there, says no. No. And then the we're government, not gonna give a, we're not giving No. We want to go ahead execute. and put this person to death. And now, you know, I saw that they just filed a petition for writ of certiorari up in the United States Supreme Court, pretty much saying, you know, this is just out. I mean, you can't let this happen. So I'm really curious to see what the United States Supreme Court does. I mean, if they allow this execution to go forward, I mean, I I just don't even know. (laughs) I mean, they might. Remember the guy they executed two months ago that he had innocent claims? like true real innocent claims they haven't they executed him anyway (laughs) they executed him anyway but he he did not have the attorney general of his state right also saying this is wrong i mean so i think that kind of sort of distinguishes it a little bit i mean i just can't even imagine like how 
when the prosecution says this is a problem, we no longer stand behind this conviction. Um, and the Crosley Green story is is another sad one that they ordered him to go back. Like, <laughs> I just, I can't. I just, and then the Sinead case where they just denied his appeal and I'm just, to reinstate his conviction, I'm just like, I, it's going backwards. Going backwards. I know, I know, <laughs> I know for sure. But I mean, there is cause for hope, right? I mean, one thing that is sort of continuing to be important is that more and more people are becoming aware of these issues. And it's probably a result of mass incarceration, right? I mean, it's like more people are being personally affected mm-hmm. by what is happening. You know, it's it's no longer those people getting picked up by the police. I mean, it's your neighbor is going to prison and we've got you know iphones i mean i don't know that you know apple really sort of believed it was going to change civil rights in america um with the with the apple or with the iphone but it's kind of turned out that way right i mean we now have kind of visual evidence of you know civil rights violations police brutality police brutality i mean people just didn't know about that no, I mean, we didn't have phones back then. It was just we didn't have phones. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was he say she say. Unless the media caught it, then nobody knew. Right. So just the change of technology altogether has changed a lot to open people's eyes to see. You know, this happens every day, and now it's affecting. It's starting affecting more races than just the brown and black community. You know what I mean? So now everybody, a lot of people are starting to be. Um, impacted by some type of impartial or injustice from the system. That's right. I mean, people are just becoming more knowledgeable. And so at the end of the day, I have to hope that that's going to be the sort of thing that begins to change the tide. You know, at a certain point, you just can't ignore it anymore. As, As terrible a thing as mass incarceration is, I do think that perhaps this is one of the byproducts that may ultimately sort of help some of these people out. I think so. And I, th- I even think the Gen Z's, as they call them, will be a big move behind pushing a different. Yeah, systems. I think that's right. They definitely I've got a Gen Z kid. And I mean, they're definitely certainly her little group are a lot more right on than, <laughs> than I was. Than I was, yeah. I was going to say the same thing. They're like so much more aware of things and knowledgeable and snarky and willing to sort of challenge authority and are irreverent. And I mean, <laughs> the kids, yeah. the kids are our future. They are. They really, they, they, they are. And I think that they're going to be the ones that, that push that change that we need as far as legislative moves and things of that nature because we got to do something different we've been doing the same thing for 50 longer than 50 something years mass incarceration has been going on for 50 years but before then still um we got to do something different especially with our criminal justice system it has to be redone because this i think we talked about this when we first talked it's like you know when you look at what's happened over the last 40 50 years and, you know, the, the ballooning of the uh, incarceration po- population from roughly 300,000 to over 2 million. And, I mean, it just makes you want, I mean, where are we going to be in 40 years from now? Right. Like, I mean, how many people are we going to have in prison 40 years mm-hmm. from now? 
<laughs> so you just I hope it's going to be not, less because if not, we're going to be broke for where I just doesn't seem people. sustainable. You know, it Ooh. just doesn't seem sustainable what what we've been doing. So I'm, you know, I guess there's cause for some optimism, but it's just. It's just kind of hard, and and you know this because you're proximate to the these same stories. I mean, it's just kind of hard to, you know, deal with human beings who are sort of trapped in this current system. It's just heartbreaking. Most definitely, most definitely. Well, Elizabeth, I appreciate this interview. It has been so insightful. Um, is there anything else that you want the audience to know? No, I just um. You know, I appreciate your having me on and, you know, I very much sort of appreciate your organization and what y'all are doing. So if you ever need, you know, a friend in South Carolina, feel free just to give me a call and I'll do what I can to help you guys out. I will. Well, we appreciate that. We're we trying to work hard to change things in North Carolina because, like I said, this land... This legislative landscape has been on a roll. So, um, you know, they just re, re-undone the unlock the vote that we had. So we got to try to figure out a game plan to advocate for that to be reversed because, I mean, that that's important, but we know why they didn't they didn't want them to vote. So. But just yeah. remember, you got you to fill your cup so that you, you got it for others. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> most definitely. And that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> All right. Well, have a relaxing weekend at least Thank and you. get back to it next week. So I you will. take care. <laughs> you too. Have a good one. So thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Your host, Sierra Cobb. Take care.